and everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Fellow Israelites, listen to this. Jesus of Nazareth was a man accredited by God to you by miracles, wonders and signs, which God did among you through him, as you yourselves know. This man was handed over to you by God's deliberate plan and foreknowledge, and you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. But God raised him from the dead, freeing him from the agony of death, because it was impossible for death to keep its hold on him. David said about him, I saw the Lord always before me, because he is at my right hand, I will not be shaken. Therefore my heart is glad and my tongue rejoices. My body also will rest in hope, because you will not abandon me to the realm of the dead. You will not let your Holy One see decay. You have made known to me the paths of life. You will fill me with joy in your presence. Fellow Israelites, I can tell you confidently that the patriarch David died and was buried, and his tomb is here to this day. But he was a prophet and knew that God had promised him on oath that he would place one of his descendants on his throne. Seeing what was to come, he spoke of the resurrection of the Messiah, that he was not abandoned to the realm of the dead, nor did his body see decay. God has raised this Jesus to life, and we are all witnesses of it. Exalted to the right hand of God, he has received from the Father the promised Holy Spirit and has poured out what you now see and hear. For David did not ascend to heaven, and yet he said, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Therefore let all Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus whom you crucified, both Lord and Messiah. When the people heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the other apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? Peter replied, Repent and be baptised, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The promise is for you and your children and for all who are afar off, for all whom the Lord our God will call. With many other words he warned them and he pleaded with them, Save yourselves from this corrupt generation. Those who accepted his message were baptised, and about 3,000 were added to their number that day. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favour of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. Thanks for that reading, Jody. Good evening, everyone. It's great to be here with you. If you're joining us on the live stream as well. Uh, if we haven't met, my name's Ken. I'm one of the pastors here. And I'd like to add my welcome to that that Grace has already extended to you. Um, as Grace has helpfully got us thinking through already, we're going to work through this second half of the second chapter of Acts. And what was made clear back in chapter 1 is that as we read the book of Acts, we should be expecting to see more of what Jesus is continuing to do and to teach. Though he's ascended to heaven, he didn't return there for a rest, but to reign. That is, he's running the mission from Command Central the right hand of his father. And so a really helpful question we can ask 
each week as we read through Acts is how is what takes place here an act of the risen Lord Jesus? What's Jesus doing here? We can also expect the summary of chapter 1 verse 8 being worked out, our, our memory verse for the term, that Jesus' followers will be his witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And so as we read chapter 2, it will start to clarify what does it look like to be a witness of Jesus, which is why (laughs) we've chosen this book to be the book of the term, making faith magnetic. We are also witnesses of Jesus, and this book is basically a tool Uh, something that is a useful uh, resource to be able to go through and help us to think through how are we doing in our role as witnesses. If you just ask that broad question, you might not be able to think it through. This gives some practical things to work through, some ideas of how to do it better. Now, I had a look on the web this week, and at Dimmick's, this book is $43 if you get the paperback edition. On Amazon, discounted to $31. At the two Australian Christian bookshops, you can buy it for 20 bucks. But for tonight only, here at WBC, just $15. Cash or card, we don't mind. Uh, come and go, go and grab one from out in the foyer. Uh, it'll be really worthwhile. And so with those couple of questions uh, ringing in our ears, let's ask for the Holy Spirit to be at work in us as we think through this passage tonight. Let's pray. Risen and ascended Lord Jesus, the one who is ruling and reigning even at this moment from heaven, we long, we're desperate to hear from you, for you to do and to teach even now. We know that the book of Acts is not just a book of history. It's a book revealing what you're like what you're continuing to do even now. And so we ask that by your spirit you would enable us to understand what these words mean, but even more than that, that he would enable us to actually put them into practice to your glory. We ask this in your name. Amen. I have a dream that one day this nation will rise up and live out the true meaning of its creed. We hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal. I have a dream that my four little children will one day live in a nation where they will not be judged by the colour of their skin, but by the content of their character. I have a dream. Now, obviously, I didn't write that. They're just two paragraphs from Martin Luther King Jr.'s very, very famous speech delivered almost 60 years ago in Washington. If you have never read or listened to it, it's been recorded, it was recorded, and you can hear it played on Google, uh, it is very, very worthwhile making the time to do so. The passion, the embodiment of the rage that was threatening to explode at the time, the directing of that pent-up fury into good means as well as a good end. King's speech is filled with historical, biblical and literary allusions. It is rightly considered a masterpiece of oratory. What was abundantly clear at the time was that the crowd was already on Luther's side. All that he said put into words what they were already feeling. 
There were no surprises, no rebukes, no telling them that they had to change course. From start to end, it was a call for freedom that resonated with his audience, moved them into action, and continues to do so even until this day. It was a significant turning point in transforming words about equality into the experience of equality, though obviously there remains, even today, a very long way to go. Now, last week we began looking at another famous speech or sermon delivered even longer ago in time. It can be argued that there are a lot of similarities between Luther King's speech and Peter's sermon in Acts 2. Peter's message is just as passionate. It too is filled with historical and biblical allusions and quotes. In some sense, it is about people's freedom. It, it moved that's all, Peter's audience to action and continues to impact even today. But I think in one point it is very, very different because none of Peter's audience started on his side. They all initially opposed his beliefs. And so tonight we're going to explore this second half of Acts chapter 2 by asking how does Peter's sermon move people from being sceptics to converts? How does these words move people from sceptic to convert? So the first point of the sermon so far, just summarising quickly what happens in verses 1 to 21. In the first half of his sermon, which we looked at last week, Peter focuses on answering how this group of backwater Galileans had been suddenly able to speak in languages that they hadn't learnt. How? Well, because the Holy Spirit has been poured out on them. While it was a bold claim and some did reject it, Peter justifies his assertion by quoting a source of authority that absolutely everybody in the crowd agreed upon. Scripture, what we call the Old Testament. It was the Jewish Bible. All present at the time were Jews, either from within the Promised Land or descendants of those who had been scattered centuries earlier by the Babylonians and Assyrians and other attacks in their history. These diaspora Jews, they were called, lived in foreign countries. They had grown up bilingual, but culturally they were still Jewish, as evidenced by their presence at one of the three big feasts that the law required all Jews to attend in Jerusalem. They weren't in Jerusalem as tourists, but as pilgrims. They'd come home, which means that everyone in the crowd would have held that the prophecy that Peter quotes is God's word to his people through the prophet Joel. But when Peter takes that next step of claiming that Joel's prophecy is fulfilled in a collection of Galilean men and women speaking a range of languages, some in the crowd must have doubted. And where we pick up today shows Peter's awareness that the crowd did not share his conclusions or were at least at this point unconvinced. The final famous verse that we finished on last week, verse 21, I think is where Peter's masterpiece really begins to shine. He finishes the quote from the book of Joel. And everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. 
Now, again, no one in the crowd would have questioned either the quotation, Peter got it right, or the promise that was contained in it. To be saved by the Lord was at the very core of their identity as Jews, whether they lived locally in Jerusalem in the promised land, whether they'd been dispersed, or even if they were converts to Judaism. Historically, whenever Israel had called on the name of the Lord, that is in Hebrew, called on the name of Yahweh, the one true God, he had rescued them, whether it was from Egypt or Assyria or Babylon or from enemies within the land. Their ongoing hope, based on verses like this, was that Yahweh would rescue them from Rome too. But Peter is actually subtly introducing a new point which isn't immediately clear and which we'll come back to when we see how Peter develops the argument. It leads immediately, in verse 22, for Peter's sermon to take a turn with the sudden introduction of Jesus. Introducing our second point, what is Peter's testimony about Jesus? We've said that they're going to be witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea and Samaria, to the ends of the same word, witness, testimony. Up until this point, Jesus' name has not been mentioned even once in the sermon. In verses 22 to 36, Peter suddenly just starts talking all about Jesus and he turns everything that they had concluded about Jesus on its head. Have a look at verse 22. Jesus was a man accredited by God to you by miracles. That is... While Jesus was still here, alive on earth, it should have been clear who he was by the miracles that he did. Now us, sitting here, have only heard of Jesus' miracles from a distance, both geographical and historical. But some of the people listening to Peter's sermon would have been present to actually see Jesus do miracles. They would have heard first-hand accounts from their friends. And Peter's implied rebuke, that Jesus' miracles should have already convinced you about who he was. Verse 23, Jesus was a man handed over to you by God's plan. That is, while you thought you were in control, God actually orchestrated the whole event. Peter's rebuke, you thought that Jesus' crucifixion meant that Jesus was being punished for disobeying God. That's what you thought it was all about but when in fact he was crucified out of obedience to God, carrying out God's eternal plan. Again, further in verse 23, you together with wicked men, that is primarily with the Roman authorities, put him to death on the cross, an absolutely stinging rebuke. Remember that this is Peter, who just seven weeks earlier was confronted by a servant girl in the shadows outside the high priest's house and he wouldn't even acknowledge that he knew Jesus. Peter now goes boldly for the collective jugular of the crowd. Had some people in this crowd literally raised their voices calling for Jesus to be crucified? Now perhaps Peter's just saying that they're guilty because they held the same opinion of those who had brought about his death. But either way, it's a damning accusation. And yet, despite their intentions, what they had tried to achieve 
by crucifying Jesus. Jesus' death by crucifixion had not been the end. Verse 24, for God raised him from the dead. The resurrection changes everything. Now, knowing that he's just given a new explanation of who Jesus is and and what happened to Jesus, knowing that it contradicts all of the conclusions the crowd had previously come to about Jesus, Peter again goes back to their commonly held source of authority. This time, rather than Joel, he quotes Psalm 16, a, a song that very possibly, as they're in Jerusalem for the festival, they would have sung at the temple. Peter explains that Psalm 16, verses 8 to 11, is fulfilled in Jesus. The words David wrote all those years before were not about David. David, the great king that he was, had died and his tomb was well known, probably a place of pilgrimage in Peter's day. But Jesus didn't have a tomb that you could go to and pay homage at because, as it says in verse 32, God has raised this Jesus to life and we are all witnesses of it. If it wasn't already abundantly clear, this is what Jesus' witnesses do. They tell the events of Jesus. Just as in a court case, witnesses are are called to the front of the court to describe what they have seen. In a very similar fashion, Peter gives his account of who Jesus is and what he has done. But notice that being Jesus' witness is not a clinical reporting of facts and events. Peter is drawing links, explaining, challenging, attempting to persuade. Peter knows his audience's, sorry, his audience's beliefs and starting from that point, tries to show where their beliefs are incomplete or just flat out wrong. Did Peter at this moment sense that the crowd was still unconvinced? Were there people jeering or calling out that, oh, your claims are rubbish, Peter? We, we don't know. But to drive home his point, Peter quotes yet another familiar scripture passage. For them, a song from the Bible, Psalm 110, another psalm of David in which God says to David's Lord, sit at my right hand. Now, in English, it's confusing because it's not obvious who is speaking to who, perhaps who to whom, I don't know. But in the original Hebrew, it is much clearer that God, whose name in Hebrew is Yahweh, is speaking to David's Lord. How can King David, greatest man in Israel at the time, have someone who is superior to him, that David would call Lord. But this person, this Lord, is distinct from Yahweh. And why would Yahweh speak to this Lord of David and allow him to sit at his right hand? Well, the crescendo comes in verse 36. Therefore let all Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Messiah. Jesus, that's who he is, Lord and Messiah, which means that we've come back full circle to where we began in verse 21. Remember the last line of the quote from the book of Joel, call on the name of the Lord and you will be saved? In the original Hebrew, that call on the name of Yahweh and you will be saved. 
But Peter now says, call on the name of Jesus and you'll be saved. Jesus is not a dead blasphemer. He is who he claimed to be all along. The book of Acts records that in the very first public explanation of who Jesus is, what he has done, what has been done to him, he is declared to be Lord and Christ, God and Messiah. Now, for the traditional Jewish audience that's listening to Peter, you would assume that this would have to have been considered blasphemy. There is but one God. How can you talk about Jesus being God? That's exactly the kind of statement that got Jesus crucified. But instead of anger and attempts to stone Peter, the people are cut to the heart, verse 37 says, realising for the first time that they crucified their God. Now, I take it that the crowd is terrified when they realise what they've done. The last days was when God would judge his enemies. Up until this moment, they had considered themselves to be a part of God's special people. But as those who had crucified Jesus, they realised that they're God's enemies, not his family. And so they cry out, what should we do? Peter responds that they must repent and be baptised. Repentance means to turn from being an enemy of Jesus to being one with him, to acknowledge that we got it wrong about who he was, to admit that we're guilty and let Jesus take the punishment that we deserve. It's to put your hand up to get the lifesaver's attention, caught in the rip, acknowledging that we cannot save ourselves. Can you come and save me? It means that I can't. But Jesus has. Now, Jews were already very familiar with repentance. That's a regular emphasis of the sacrificial system. But what about baptism? The start of the Gospels talk about baptism by John the baptizer, an action that at that time indicated repentance, preparation for the coming of the Messiah. And clearly repentance is still a foundational part of its meaning. But now to be baptised ties repentance to Jesus. It is to physically and verbally declare in a dramatised way that you are connected to Jesus in his death and his resurrection. Not only have you turned away, repented from what you've done wrong, But you want everybody to know that when Jesus died, he died for you. The death that you deserve to die for your wrong. When he rose, that resurrection life is not his alone, but is also given as a gift to you. How great is it that tonight, of all nights, we're going to witness Nasif going through exactly that process of being baptised. Now notice in verse 40, Peter goes on. With many other words, Peter pleads with them to save themselves, which I think makes clear that to be Jesus' witness is to attempt to persuade people of their need for Jesus, to analyse what people are already believing and thinking and work out how can I explain 
who Jesus is and what he has done so they understand. It's thinking and strategizing and ensuring the best communication possible. But to make sure that we don't mistakenly conclude, therefore, that being a witness is a solely human activity, the role of the Holy Spirit is, at the same time, emphasised in these verses. As Peter does all that he can, empowered by the Spirit, the Holy Spirit takes Peter's explanation and cuts the listeners to the heart. To be Jesus' witness is an activity in which humans and God work together. It's not merely mental ascent, but spiritual transformation. And about 3,000, verse 41 tells us, are added to the existing 120 believers. What an absolutely amazing day. How good would it have been to be there, to hear his sermon? Jesus is no longer teaching directly, but teaches the crowd through Peter and the other believers. Jesus brings enemies into his kingdom by sending his spirit to work in people's hearts, which means surely that as Jesus witnesses, that we will do everything in our power to understand those we share with. We'll work harder than anyone on communicating clearly. And at exactly the same time, we will be utterly dependent on the Holy Spirit. Not one or the other, both and. That's what it means to be a witness. And yet Luke's not finished. Verses 42 to 47 draw the events of that Pentecost to a conclusion. Our third point, what change does accepting Jesus as Lord and Messiah lead to? How do you see what's taken place? Well, given that everyone present was Jewish, you might think that the change in theology, the shift in their understanding of the book of Joel, the Psalms, was the biggest change that took place that day. And I agree, it was an absolutely monumental change, a a paradigm shift. It's hard to imagine how it could have taken place in such a short period of time. But Acts chapter 2 tells us that even though that's an amazing thing, the biggest change that took place as people trusted in Jesus as Lord and Messiah is the community that they then became members of. What most obviously indicates that someone's put their trust in Jesus as Lord and Messiah, they become a part of a new community. Together, they are all devoted to the apostles' teaching, to fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. Now, there's a list that WBC can helpfully compare ourselves to. Are we part of a community that is equally devoted to the apostles' teaching? The Jews were already very, very familiar with what we call the Old Testament, but now they realise their desperate need to understand it, not as rules or history or anything else. It pointed to the coming of Jesus and how he would be our substitute. Very, very easy for us to say that we believe the Bible. But are we familiar with how the whole Bible is about Jesus or do we just know the vibe of it? What have we put in place to be regularly studying his word? Sundays are important, but why would you restrict yourself to an hour, an hour and a half a week? Are you meeting in a small group? Are you reading your Bible daily? 
Now, second on this list is fellowship. Is fellowship something that we have to have our arms twisted to be a part of, or is it something that we can't do without? I don't think that this means that everyone at WBC all of a sudden needs to be best mates, but do you take the opportunities that are provided or do you avoid them? Coming early and staying after the service for 20 minutes to talk with and pray for someone is far more valuable an investment than rushing home to watch the footy, the cycling, or even the Commonwealth Games. Do you make room in your diary? Do you put it in there first when there's men's breakfasts and women's conferences on? Or do you only go along if there's nothing better to do on the night? Number three, are we regularly breaking bread together? As we read on in Acts, breaking bread is clearly Luke's shorthand for communion. But it almost certainly refers to other meals as well. We celebrate communion here once a month, and that's a good thing to prioritise and be here for. But are we inviting others to share meals with us? Are we hanging out at one of the amazing local coffee shops to build one another up? Make Sunday night the night that you invite somebody to go out with you after church, share a meal together, get to know them better and encourage one another. Even better, do it on other days through the week as well. Fourthly and finally, are we praying often and with expectation? Not just praying when we need a parking spot or when we find ourselves in a major family crisis, regularly communicating with Jesus, knowing that he is running the mission that we're a part of. Do we humbly demonstrate that we understand that we are not in control? Or are we stuck in human efforts, thinking that somehow our thoughts and strategies and communication techniques are enough? These four things are not impossible standards. Their essential elements of the community established by receiving Jesus as Lord and Messiah. When you accept Jesus as Lord and Messiah, the first obvious expression of it after being baptised is how we relate to others with the same Lord and Messiah. Church is a group of supernaturally united people who together follow Jesus as their Lord and Saviour. They're devoted to teaching that focuses on Jesus, to fellowship, to eating together, and to prayer. Now, before Jesus came as the fulfilment, the people of God had laws and sacrifice and all sorts of demands that they needed to meet. They had circumcision and special festivals that distinguished them as a unique nation. But now, their connectedness is in Jesus. And that means being connected to those who are also connected to Jesus. I think our Western individualism has hidden a key truth that is obviously on display from the opening moment of the book of Acts. The early church in Acts was an exciting time, a time of unity, a time of sacrificially serving one another in the Christian community. This group of Jesus followers were praising God and as a result, were respected by those around, verse 47. And in a summary statement that Luke's just going to come back to over and over again through the book of Acts, and the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. 
people were calling on the Lord and the Lord Jesus was saving them. Again, this is Acts' description of what church is. The church is the group of people through whom the news about Jesus is being proclaimed and the Holy Spirit is using that proclamation to save people. Outwardly focused, intent on bringing people into the community focused on Jesus. If this is not at the heart of what we are, then we have to re-examine our hearts. If making Jesus known remains merely a statement on our website or on the wall outside the door as you enter the auditorium and we don't put it into action, then what value is that statement? Acts is incredibly exciting history but it clearly demonstrates what we need to prioritise right now. Luke, long before Martin Luther King, had a dream that one day this group of Jesus followers will rise up and live out the true meaning of its creed. May the Holy Spirit work in us to enable each one of us and together to be effective witnesses of Jesus in a world that is desperate to hear and to see that lived out. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we praise you that this event that took took place so long ago, so far from us, was written down by Luke so that we could understand what took place on that day. This event wasn't just for those 3,000 who realised their mistake about who you are and what you've done. The power of it, the impact of it flows down to us today. And from us and through us, it's clearly to be taken to others. And so I pray that, again, you would enable us to understand these words, that they're not just a record of history, but that they're the words of the commander-in-chief to his people so that we would understand how we might live. Enable us to be your witnesses those who are committed to the teaching of the apostles, that we'd break bread together, that we would pray expectantly, that we'd be sharing this message to those around us. We pray that this would bring you glory. In Jesus' name, amen.